Hi, Jane. Hi, Justin. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. So I've been thinking about this. How many jobs do you have? Um, because I, I've started to see you everywhere and I can't quite I figure have, it out. I have one main job, which is that I am the host of the New York Times podcast, The Argument. I also write a newsletter that is often about something esoteric that I try to make relevant to a wide group of people. Where do you um, write that? Pardon? Where is that? Is that that on... is a subscription-based, uh, it's a New York Times newsletter. Um, a lot of times I'm writing about sports, which is interesting because I'm writing for an audience that I assume does not watch sports and does not watch sports the way I watch sports, which is like a lunatic. Um, <laughs> so that that's an interesting challenge. But yeah, people can subscribe to my newsletter. That would be very much appreciated. Though it feels, it's it's interesting that we're in an era of like, I don't, it is, it is hard for me to ask people to subscribe to things. It is something that I'm like, this is a thing people do. I need to ask people to participate in this relationship. But it is an interesting thing to start doing as a very Midwestern person who would never want to ask anyone to do anything for them ever. Yeah. But your projects sort of build on each other, right? Because yeah. the fact that you do one brings in an audience right. for the other thing. Right, exactly. And so the podcast and going well and then i think also me t being on twitter a lot and people knowing that i've done a bunch of other things i think that helped i had kind of an audience that came not just through the podcast but through twitter and through my work at vox and through the sports writing i've done which is an interesting moment because i realized that i have an audience that follows me on twitter and has followed me on twitter i've been on twitter since 2009 and so i have that for me of, yeah i've i've been on there a long time i feel like I'm, <laughs> it's weird to be an old timer on a platform like oh in my day um but yeah so there's that group and then there are the people who have only heard about me through either the podcast or being on tv sometimes so i'm just like okay hello <laughs> it's, just, it's a kind of a crazy introductory period i think you have if you start following me in any real capacity why are you so into sports? Is that like from your childhood you're just really into sports? Because no, you know um, you know a lot more about football than I do. Like it's not even close. I we're both Michigan fans, but right. I don't come close to knowing what you know. Well, I think that there's just um when I was a kid, I think I thought that you needed to be athletic to be in the sports, and when I was a little kid, I was like this little fat kid it was not a great time, but I was not athletic. But my dad loved watching football, and I wanted to hang out with my dad on Sundays. And it's uh, it's funny because we were watching the early 90s Cincinnati Bengals, like <laughs> the nadir of the franchise. And yet, like, we would just watch games together, and it was so much fun to be with him and to talk about the sport. And I just fell in love with it, like, especially because it's interesting because I've talked to people who have played in the NFL and or played in college and they talk about how like how little they think about it like when you're playing high level football even if that's all like basically all you do the number of people I've spoken to who are like yeah we just didn't really think about it that much and I'm like I think about <laughs> football all the time and I think that that's why if you've watched a lot of it or even like you know even if you get as close as you can as a journalist but you've never played it 
it's such an interesting and very different relationship you have with that sport or any sport. And I think that that's something that has always fascinated me about sports is just thinking about them on so many planes. Visually, I think football and, you know, I've, I've been thinking a lot about how, like, when I was a kid, my dad's also really into cycling. And so we mm-hmm. watched the Tour de France. And part of watching the Tour de France is that it's beautiful. It's like the rolling mountains of France and then people dying on these mountains. And it's, even that is visually interesting to me. So there's this visual element. There's kind of the storylines that we construct for sports. And I love the, how, you know, we continually, as humans, we try and, you know, we, we invent a sport. And then people get really good at that sport. And then we're like, okay, we're going to make it harder and harder and harder. And then when people keep getting there. And I think that that's such a fascinating element of observing human achievement. I don't know if you've ever watched, like, one thing I like to do sometimes is watch what gymnastics or any sport looked like in the 50s. And it's just like someone doing a cartwheel and getting a gold medal. And I'm like, <laughs> it's amazing. Because those people would have had the capacity to do things people are doing now. But they didn't. They didn't even conceive of it. And it just is like, I think I'm just, sports is something I'm passionate about on so many different levels. And yeah. I think that that's just something that I've, that's so important to me is how much sports helps me make sense of the world. Like, I think that I'm a better writer and thinker because I watch a lot of sports. And sometimes I can tell how people are talking about politics is also how people talk about sports. And I want to tell them to stop doing that. Yeah. Do you think the athletes can essentially evolve beyond the game where the game doesn't really work anymore? Like I've noticed this a little bit in basketball where the three-point shooting has been so much better in recent years right? that the game just has a totally different feel. And I don't know, maybe the athletes who would have been successful 20 years ago are just not at all able to play it. And it's not even the same game in many respects. I think that, I mean, but then the players are, it's not even that the people aren't able to play it. It's like that their games have to evolve. Like you don't have, you really need even like, you don't have these big lumbering centers, for example. anymore. No, no. And you can't have that. And that's what, you know, you don't see that in college anymore either. Like all, every center who wants to play, at the next level is has an inside game and an outside game. And that's something that even when I was a kid, it was just basically like, you just put the largest person you can find at center. <laughs> and then they're like, all they do is just plug up the paint. But now you want a center who could also hit beyond the arc, which is something that I'm just like, that's in, but you know, you see people develop through that. You know, you see that when little kids are starting to play like, youth league basketball they've been watching the nba and college basketball and so like their games start developing and it's very much the same way that like you know kids watched michael jordan or something like that or watched those like late 80s piston teams like that game is so different like i don't know if you've watched um occasionally i remember we have a cable package that has the olympic channel which one, during this past Olympics, it was like, that was the moment where I was like, I think your pro-China lean on this is making me uncomfortable. But they often show, like, old Olympic events, and they showed, like, the 1988 Olympic basketball gold medal game. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Boring. It was, and I think that that was, that was the moment I was like, am I, am I a youth? 
because I am like, this is the most boring thing I've ever watched. It's very hard even watching games that took place before. Well, what like, what about like the, the dream team or whatever, like the NBA dream team that yeah. went to, I but they, they it was Barcelona, right? People. They decimated people. Like, you know, it just was incomparable, but I, 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 I really like the fact that that wouldn't happen as much. And yeah, which that, Olympics like, was that? I can't remember. Was that? That's 92. That's 92. Yeah, was that's that Barcelona? Barcelona? Yeah. 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 Okay. That's the so. first Olympics I remember taking place. Um, I don't remember the basketball at all. Cause I think I just wanted to watch gymnastics. Cause like when I was a little kid, <laughs> gymnastics was my favorite sport. But yeah. the older I get, the more I'm like, oh, I feel weird about this. Yeah, I watched those basketball games, and it was just like, you know, our players dunking over everyone. Right. And the we'd win by 70. Yeah, and then they like be like, could we please speak with you, Michael <laughs> Jordan? Um, we are huge fans. But, like, you see now, I kind of appreciate that, like, an international basketball like, the U.S. is, like, very obviously one of the best, but, like, Argentina is, like, no, we're here. Like, because everybody yeah. plays in the NBA. Right. Yeah, the international players here play here now, so. Yeah. So, is football your favorite sport? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and what is it specifically about football that you find exciting? When I was a kid, I didn't watch much football. I, I'll admit that. It's, it's a sport I came to later in life. And part of it is because I went to Michigan. Right. Right. And you sort of like have to become a big yeah. football fan. I, I watched it obviously in high school, but like not – I didn't become a big fan until I went to Michigan. Right. No, I think that that's um, – I, 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 I think that's true for a lot of people. Um, one that you have the moment – like I remember my first game that I went to at Michigan was a 2005 Michigan-Penn State. Uh, it was. It ended when Chad Henney threw a touchdown to Mario Manningham on like a fourth and one with three seconds left. And I remember being like, that's the greatest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. I'm in, <laughs> locked in forever. That was me. Like, I was, that's it. I just was like, I love everything about this. And it's, it's interesting how you, you're, that was not a logical decision I made. My life would be so much easier if I thought less about Michigan football or cared less. I've tried, mm -hmm. but like, it's taken a lot of work so that I am like a human being on Saturdays. Um, but I think that what I find exciting about the sport and what I find more exciting the older I get is like, because I was thinking about this, that your time, what years were you at Michigan? Uh, 98 to 02. I mean, for okay. undergrad. And then I was there for law school, too, till 05. Right. right. We would have intersected. That's a really funny thought. I hadn't thought about that. For, like, a very brief time, we would have intersected, but in a very different way. Because um, I would have been a <laughs> freshman when you were graduating from law school. Um, well, I think that one of the things about you mentioning, like, not growing up watching football is that I mm -hmm. think the football, if we would have watched, like, NFL games in the early nineties, even the very good teams, like we, I think we remember old sports with this kind of halcyon glaze. Cause that's the stuff you watch as a little kid. Mm -hmm. But I've watched a bunch of like older, um, like NFL games. Like they showed, um, the Bengals, the last time they won a playoff game was in like 1991. They showed that game again, incredibly boring. Like e even, for one thing, I wasn't used to, like, what televisions would have looked like back then. Like, I'm so, 
I, I'm so pampered by ESPN telling me what the score is the whole time. But it was like it was a different game. And I think that from a little kid perspective, I totally understand why, like, when I was six, I didn't want to watch this. Now, like, if I were a little kid watching, like, the Chiefs play or something, I would have lost my mind. Like, that is, like, the highest scoring that is possible because of rules changes. Like, that the Chiefs-Bills playoff game earlier this year is, like, one of the best games of football I've ever seen. I am not, like, emotionally tied to either team, so I'm very glad about that. But, like, that was intense. I'm so mad. I I missed that game, and after it happened, everyone was like, that was the greatest game ever. And I was like, great. No, and genuinely, I was like, I I felt – I wanted to, like, shake hands with everyone on both teams. Like, it literally was a, like, that was incredible. It's sad that somehow, like – only one of you can win this game. But yeah, like I think that why I got into football, why I'm more into football than I was when I was in college, actually, because when I was in college, like I was into it and I watched games, but like it was just so hard being on campus after like a big loss. Like it would just be all anyone would want to hear, like, you know, on early Twitter and stuff. Like that's all anyone wanted to talk about. I guess you were there during a time when they were losing. Yeah. I was there for Appalachian state. I was in the stadium for Appalachian state. Because while I was there, while I was there, they basically never lost. Right. Yeah. No, you had a great run. You were crazy. Yeah, that's right. And then people were whining during that time about how Drew Henson would have been better. Like we're a whiny bunch. And it's really (laughs) funny to think about it over time where people were like, Tom Brady, the future greatest player of all time in the NFL, is someone you're like, eh, how about this baseball player? He seems nice. But um, I think that, like, I really appreciate the evolution of the game. That's happened because of rules changes. I see in the comments someone pointed out that, like, um, that the game has changed because of, like, you know, the end of those big hits. And I think that that's something that had to happen, but it is something also in which you see the, the league trying to make the game more exciting, which I think is an interesting thing to do for a sport. And I wonder, I don't, I find baseball interminable. Um, but I like going to baseball games. Baseball games are really nice because you just stand there with a drink on a sunny day and people do a thing on a grassy field. Right. But like, I think that, one of the things I appreciate about football from the NFL perspective is the degree to which the NFL is like, you are a consumer of something we are selling you. We want to give you something you are going to want to continue to consume. Like they care about viewership numbers. And so you see like rules changing regarding like protecting quarterbacks, because I know the quarterbacks are like the most famous players in the league. Um, changes to like hits and where you can hit and what you can't hit after 15 yards. Like a lot of those changes were both about safety, but also because people wanted to watch higher scoring games. Do you feel like you have a good grasp of all the rules? Um, because I watch games and I usually know what's being called and understand it, but there's every once in a while, there's a call. I'm like, what is that? There's some stuff where, I'll, I know all the calls, but there are some stuff that will get identified in a way like 
for one thing, like a neutral zone infraction or something like that, that's something either it's very obvious or you're just like, I have no idea what just happened here. But most stuff, like once you watch enough games, I do think that the, I appreciate that level of fluidity of recognizing when there was holding, when are, when are these things taking place? The issue is that for a lot of penalties, like holding is always happening. It's like, you could call Mm -hmm. it every single down. Um, some stuff, it's just like when you have, so, so do you think it's, sorry, do you think it's arbitrary then? I don't think it's arbitrary. I think that holding gets called when it clearly influences what's taking place. Like if the ball is on the, like if the ball gets snapped and goes to a running back who then runs to the left and there's like holding taking place on the right side of the line. I think that gets called less just because the refs are looking that way. That's, I mean, granted you have a side judge who's going to like hopefully see that, but who knows? But I do think that the calls, if it seems like it's going to like have a bigger influence on the play of game, I think that's when stuff gets called more, but a lot of stuff you could call like hand checking, pushing off, like a lot of that stuff. That's, that's the interesting thing is that you have this sport that's like, about numbers, and then it turns out to look the least objective eyes possible, which are human. It's not even like a, like, oh, refs are biased. I'm like, no, they're people, and football is hard, and trying to determine an action, taking what it was and what it wasn't at, as it's happening is impossible. Like, I think that's something that shows up. I actually, um, were you at that talk I gave at Grand Valley State? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I brought this up about like whether something was um, a catch or not a catch, and it just is like that. That's beyond. It, no, who can say? The NFL comes back later, being like it was a catch. Like it's it's really hard, and I I think a lot about how it gets. I think a, a ton about how the way we think about refereeing or you know dealing art being you know, arbiting a sport is so reminiscent of how we try to arbiter everyday life. Like I think about this a lot with like people wanting tech regulations and I'm like, okay, like you want this to be a penalty. Who do you want calling it? <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. I don't, I don't, any of these people, I'm like, I don't trust any of you. <laughs> I don't want you to call like, who are you to call me for was mean on the internet? downloaded thing that didn't belong to me. Like, who are you? So you, to me, are someone who's a Michigan football fan, but would you consider yourself more of a college football person or professional football? Um, I watch more college football, but that's because I think the season is, yeah, the season is shorter. Mm -hmm. So it feels like you got to get the, like, you know, there's, 12 weeks you have a bye week so like 11 yeah no no this 13 weeks whatever it works out to be you have a limited amount of time for college football i love college football like college football saturdays in every phase of my life have been fantastic like i loved going to games at michigan like when you'd win and it was an early game and then you'd go hang out with your friends and it was great like it was this amazing activity and then when you're an adult, it's even better because you're in like your own home, you're comfy, you're watching 
essentially watching television for eight hours, but it doesn't feel like television because it's constantly like I'm always watching multiple games at once because Michigan games makes me really anxious. So I have to flip around and it drives my spouse insane, but I'm awful with this. Like I will watch like four or five games at once (laughs) along with a Michigan game because I'm like, I can't handle it. I can't handle the tension. Um, yeah, I'm really. You should not watch football games with me. It's a real. I'm really annoying. I should well, do it. It's I, safer for me to do it by myself. Yeah. Do you do you still go to any games? Yeah. Um. I last went back. I didn't get to go back this season, but I think I'm going to go. Um. This upcoming season, I went to the 2019 Notre Dame game. Mm-hmm. Um. It was like the last one because they. Notre Dame wanted out of the rivalry for some reason, and um, the next one won't be until, like, 2026, which felt really far away at the time when this was announced, and now I'm like, oh, that's, like, coming up. (laughs) Um, It poured rain, and it was my spouse's first Michigan game, and it was still super fun. We won. We beat Notre Dame. Um, (laughs) They gave everyone, because it was, like, the hundredth anniversary of the rivalry or something. They gave everyone these towels, but it was raining so hard. They just turned into projectiles. <laughs> and there was a really BS pass interference call against Michigan. Like every, it was right in front of the student section and I was next to the student section somehow with a bunch of players, parents, which was really fun. Uh, like Donovan Peoples Jones's family all had matching rain jackets, but his grandma pieced out in the first quarter. Cause she was like, I'm 80, like I'm out. <laughs> Um, like totally understand. This is disgusting weather. It was sleeting. It was awful. Um, but so there was this BS call. You clearly from where we were could see the wide receiver actually put, it should have been offensive pass interference, but it wasn't called that way. And the student section just starts chucking these towels at the ref and like screaming. And Jim Harbaugh actually like walks over and is like trying to get them to stop. And my spouse went to Harvard, and I've been to Harvard-Yale, and Harvard-Yale, in comparison to this, is just, like, like it is amazing. My spouse had never even considered of, one, how many people would be at this game. Like, yeah. walking into the big house for the first time, and you're like, oh, okay. But also just how, like, I believe my spouse used the term rowdy, which I feel like is a weird, like, you say that it's an interesting term, but my spouse is from New Zealand, and I think... New Zealanders say rowdy more often, but like Harvard, Yale, no one pays any attention. You hang out in the parking lot and then everybody we were with was like, we're going to go to the art museum. Like this was angry, wet children screaming obscenities at a referee over a pass interference call in a game we were winning. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like it was, um, that was the last game and I'm excited to get to one where it isn't raining. Like, we bought all this rain gear and everything before the game, and it just – we were – it was not good. Yeah. I went to um, the Michigan-Ohio State game this year. Oh, So wow. that was, was that, that like? was fun. That was great. Yeah. And I got Did to take go my son. Uh, no, we didn't go out to the field. We, we, were, um, we were up a little higher, so we didn't get down there, but we, uh, we had a lot of fun. It was I, – I made sure that after the game we all took it in. Like, you know – some of the people I was with, they were like, well, okay, let's go. You know, it's time to go. Game's over or whatever. But I was like, no. come on. Like, this is no, not – this doesn't happen every day. So yeah. let's just enjoy it. Yeah. No, I, uh, I've i watched that game so many times because 
Gus Johnson announcing it felt really, it, it's, it's very good. It's very helpful for me, but um, no, that that's, I'm excited to get back to another game, especially because I think that um, it's an experience that I appreciate the degree to which it feels like really familiar. I don't have a moment of being like, whoa, this has changed a lot or something. And I, I like that. I like that consistency. Yeah. Does that make me a trad now? Am I a trad con? <laughs> is that what it is? I don't know about that, but so you grew up in Ohio. I did. Yeah. So were you considered like a trader going to Michigan? No. That... Um, the politics of Ohio sports are such that like actually a large swath of Ohio does not like Ohio State and finds Ohio State annoying. Mm-hmm. Like every time Ohio State has to play UC in anything, it is like a big rivalry. Because um, I'm from Cincinnati and Cincinnati is like, no, no, no. We have the University of Cincinnati. And like this year, UC football was great. Um, UC basketball is weirdly not as good, which is something when I was a kid, like UC basketball, like Xavier and UC were like these big rivals and they had on the floor fight once and like UC basketball is a thing and UC football was just nothing and non-existent. But like, even then there were not pro Ohio state sentiments. And most people I knew, I knew some people in my high school went to Ohio state, but a lot of people went to like case Western and Dayton, like a bunch of places that were not. It's not as, um, I would say that probably if you polled Ohioans on like what team they were a fan of, a majority would say that they are Ohio State fans. But I think that that is because Ohio State is a massive university. Columbus is like the capital city. There's just a lot of people to mm-hmm. be Ohio State fans. But we, I did not, no one really bothered me about that. It wasn't until I went to Michigan that people are like, oh, I'm so glad you left. And I was like, <laughs> When you were growing up in Cincinnati, did you feel like that was the South? No, no. I very much felt like I knew where the South was and I knew what the South sounded like. And yeah. we were not it. Because our next door neighbors were from, they'd moved up from Tennessee. And they had really thick Southern accents. And I was like, well, we're not that. I think that Cincinnati, I mean, as a border town has always been this weird back and forth of like, you know, Southern, Northern, Southern, Northern, Midwestern, East, like this confluence. I'm actually reading a really interesting book um, about, uh, I believe, Harriet Beecher Stowe's father. Um, Hang on. I mean, I want to get this right. (laughs) I want to make sure that I am correct. Yeah, no problem. I am. Let's see. Hang on. Hang on. Lyman Beecher. Ah, Harriet Beecher Stowe's brother, Henry Ward Beecher. Um, and how he was, he was, at one point, he was like the most famous person in America. But it talks about how um, when he moved to Cincinnati, which is where his father had gone to set up a um, seminary. And Cincinnati was like, all these people who were essentially, like he treat he, the book talks about Cincinnati in the 1830s is like the most exciting place in the entire world, which I cannot imagine Cincinnati ever being. Um, but it has, it was this confluence of you had uh, freed African-Americans in Cincinnati who had like were runaways or they had managed to buy their freedom. And they are, you know, you have German immigrants who are um, very, very, protective of their heritage um which leads to conflicts because there are lots of 
Um, Henry Ward Beecher's father was very anti-Catholic, and so there were, like, anti-Catholic hate crimes across Cincinnati, um, which is interesting now as I was raised Catholic in Cincinnati. Um, but, like, you see this confluence happening there. And so Cincinnati being this weird meeting place of people who were like, actually, I'm a Northwestern fan or something. Like, I, I know, you know, it's a, a weird comparison, but I do feel as if that, that makes sense. Like, Cincinnati is a very weird city in a lot of ways like it is very in some ways it's very retrograde and has or has been um in other ways the city itself will just be like you know super lefty but then it's always this battle between the city and the county like of hamilton county like you know steve shabbat and john boehner are like both from this area and we're both supposed to be in some way representing like where I grew up, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird, it's an, a weird and interesting place that fortunately never bothered me about where I was going to college. Yeah. And Thomas Massey's not far from you either. Yeah. Yeah. Right um, down there. Rob Portman's kids. Uh, my friend uh, ran a kid, like a kid's camp and Rob Portman's kids came to it and they were really nice kids. And now I realize that, like, his kids are now in, like, their early 20s. And I'm like, I'm old. They were nice. That's all I've got. That's, like, I feel like Cincinnati, when I, the last time I was back, I had an Uber from the airport. And the guy was telling me about how John Boehner uh, bought his kids out of all their Girl Scout cookies and was really (laughs) nice. And I was just like, thank you for telling me this. So you mentioned being Catholic growing up. Yeah. Were you very religious growing up? And um, and are you religious today? I think that hmm, that's an interesting question. Um, I was definitively more religious than my parents were. Um, so my mom became a Catholic. She converted in order to marry my dad because I was like my grandma's one stipulation. Um, I think that somehow like the interracial marriage did not bother her. She needed my mom to become Catholic. Like that was the one thing. And so... Um, but my parents were very much like working class former hippies who were very in, I they found in Catholicism a real home because there is kind of a strand of liberal Catholicism, kind of Dorothy Day, Sojourner's Magazine, um, like a real, you know, thinking a lot about the sacrifices of Oscar Romero and thinking about the church standing up against oppressive governments. Um, governments that sometimes the U.S. funds. Uh, I think that was something that really appealed to them. But I, when I was a kid, like, and I remember that there's that, um, I believe it's the comedian George Carlin. He has this thing about how, or had this thing about how when you're like a little kid, church is like, oh, Jesus loves you. And then you get older and then it's like, Jesus loves you. But like, there are some provisos. Um, and I think that that was something that I found very overwhelming, but I am a person where I'm like, no, I can overcome this. I can overcome sin. And so like, I was very anxious about religion and found that found my faith very challenging to have. And I, I am, so I will say that I am faithful now, but I am not religious because I found like, like I am a Christian. I believe in I like I believe in it like virgin birth I'm in like rose from the dead locked in I'm in I'm sold I did it I will sign whatever you need um but I feel as if that sometimes the way that like the bible 
has been interpreted by people because people are inherently sinful. I don't know. I, I think that that's why I would think of, I'm not, I am not religious, but I am faithful. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. So your parents, you said were hippies? Yeah. Uh, well, my mom definitely was. And then my dad, oh yeah. Okay. Now thinking about it. Yeah, they both were. Um, I feel like my, like my mom, she graduated from college in 1968. So like she graduated, she went to Carleton, which is a tiny mm-hmm. school in uh, Minnesota. And, um, my dad went to Northwestern and he graduated, I think in like 1975 or something. And then he went on a road trip with his brother to Yellowstone. And then he came back and he moved to New Orleans and lived in a van for several months and then moved home because Lou Reed released a new album and he didn't have a record player in his van. (laughs) And I'm like, ah, cool. Great to hear. Um, I once asked him, could I live in a van? And he said, no. And I was like, I don't understand the difference. Uh, there's a big difference, but I, yeah, they were, um, it's interesting because I think that so much of our culture, the older I get, and I think about this more, so much of our culture is shaped by whoever happens to be 20 and whoever happens to be 60 at the time. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to see my parents going from the ones who are being referred to as like. Like my grandma still, my mom, my grandma passed away in 2015 when she was 92. And up until then she was talking, she, when she would refer to my um, mom, she would call my mom young lady. And I think that that's one of the things that must, it must be very challenging. I'm sure it will be challenging is to have an entire generation that's youth is so fetishized by our culture as like the sixties generation. And now they're like, I need a hip replacement. Like that is, right. I mean, I think that that's going to be, I mean, a, we're not close to it yet, but like you see that with millennials, how like people always talk about millennials, like, ah, they're spending too much on avocado toast. Like the oldest millennials are in their forties. <laughs> they're good on toast. <laughs> so was, was interracial marriage a big problem for your parents at the time, I mean, uh, outside of their own parents, y- you seem to suggest at least that it wasn't such a problem for them in their own families. But no, um, well, I but think you know that... the culture has changed a lot, right? And... No, it has. It, obviously, um, they got married in 1979. They had um, my so I will refer to her as my black grandma, who's the one who passed away at 92. Um, she was fine with it. Um, I, I interviewed her when I was in college. I was like a, a project I had my freshman year of college. So I came home and I interviewed her and it's on a tape at my parents' house. But her, you know, it was like, oh, were you surprised that dad married a white woman? And her response was, no, I kind of always figured that would happen. And I don't, I should have, I should have asked more questions about that, but I'm actually okay that I didn't. Um, and so that was, fine and my mom's family um they were my mom's parents were fine my mom my white grandmother's relatives in west virginia were not fine with it um because they became convinced that this must be some sort of like sham marriage and i always think like my parents will be married like they've been married for nearly 40 years um more than 40 years more than 40 years now and so I think the sham, I think we're good. Are we good on that? Yeah. Um, not, not a sham. Not a sham. 
No, they they were lo- they were locked in, but they so they had one relative who was just like super offended by it. Apparently, I met him as a very small child, and he thought I was adorable because that's how that happens. It's like, oh, we oppose yeah. the marriage, and then you meet the kids, and then you're like, oh, okay, I guess this is okay, which is a a weird way to like. I can only buy into this if you produce cute progeny. I don't know. <laughs> but sometimes that is how culture evolves and people oh, yeah. change, right? They yeah, no, that's they um, they find out their friend is gay, and they're right. like, oh, well, I guess I'm not against gay people, right? You know? Which I think, <laughs> I mean, that's that's much more. I mean, that's just how humans work. Humans are relational beings, and it's like that's why I think that in some ways, part of the success of the fight for marriage equality was to make it as, like, banal as humanly possible and then just be like, let your nice cousin get married. Like, that is a message that makes more sense. I think that that's the challenge between, like, the messaging you like and the messaging that works is that sometimes, like, the messaging you like the most does not work. It does not work with people who aren't you. And, like, that's something that I I think about, you know, people are relational. People want connection and community and so whatever messaging creates that that works so how did your politics get shaped were were your parents liberal or progressive or i don't know what term you might have they might have used back then i think that i said this um i had a conversation i think last year with nick gillespie at reason um and i talked about how i think my politics were shaped by the fact that I grew up in like this island by by island. I mean my house of like lefty liberal political and social culture. Uh, My dad is a, was a film librarian. So he brought home foreign films all the time. And so that's Mm -hmm. what I thought everybody was watching and they weren't. Um, And they were very into, I believe the category has been changed, but, I believe the category used to be called world music. So I grew up with a lot of like Johnny Clegg, who's like a South African artist, who's also like took a huge stand as a white artist in South Africa by only working with um, like black musicians, um, even in the midst of apartheid. And so like I grew up listening to that or, you know, with my dad, I listened to a lot of Steely Dan, but like, um, you know, it was very much shaped by the, my I was in this particular blue bubble, but it was just my house. It didn't extend any further. Like I wasn't siloed. I was just in this like protective bubble because then you would leave our house and everyone around us thought that like, you know, I went to high school with everyone thinking that the Iraq war was a great idea and that Afghanistan was going to be awesome. That George W. Bush was an amazing person who their parents were trying to like reelect in 2004. And that like, you know, Republicans are awesome all the time. Republicans will always win everything in this area of Ohio. And like, especially anti LGBT stuff, like that was just like, that's just how the world was. And then my, my house was like this different place. But even then I think my parents, I think their liberalism was affected by being like hippies who saw, um, McGovern lose and hippies who saw like the 84 election. Like, I think that my parents' perspective was that like this, something will go wrong at some point. So we will have our politics, but like thinking that we could extend it further is just like a pipe dream. 
And I think that that my politics were shaped by just assuming that everyone who isn't my parents and including my parents on a lot of issues does not agree with me and will never agree with me. And so I kind of have to like always be in a position to make my views make more sense to other people because I have to assume that they won't. So I think that that's how it, uh, you know, how my upbringing affected my, how I attempt to interpret my politics to others. Um, I think that like, like most people, my politics as I, I, you know, as I want to practice them are shaped by both things that I think are correct, but also experiences I have that like, you know, there's always kind of the politics you want and the politics you have. And I think that for many people, they wish that they were the same thing, but they're often not. It's sort of like how they're the people who are like, you know, we get, I want to abolish the police, but they still use a private security service or something. Cause it's not, it's, I think it's not just like, ha ha, I am a hypocrite. I think it's more that like, no, 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 but you don't understand these particular reasons why I need this. And I think that for some people that, that bifurcation is like something they can't quite put their, you know, wrap their minds around. But I, I hope that for me, I am always trying to be upfront with how there's the politics that I will voice and talk about and be like, this is what I think I believe. But I also have, you know, I recognize that my politics, like I don't know what would happen if the thing I want most was actually to happen. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know what, what if something bad happened? I don't know. It could. And that's what, you know, that's what keeps me up at night. And that my politics is like trying to balance those two things of like a politics that would make life better for me versus the politics that would make life better for the most people, even if I'm annoyed about it. And I think that like, I want the thing that is the best for the most people, but I would also like to be happy. (laughs) I think we'd all like to be happy. That's for sure. So were you ever a Democrat? I don't know what your... Yeah, no, I was a, um, I registered as a Democrat when I registered to vote for the first time, and that would have been the... Would that have been the, the 2008 presidential election? Hmm. Um, because in the state of Michigan... Yeah, that was, that was, that was, I felt, I remember at the time just being like, I feel good about this. Um, I changed my registration to register as a libertarian either um, just before the 20, yeah, I think just before the 2016 election. Yeah. But um, I think that again, yeah, I'm just trying to make sure that that's, yeah, I think that's correct. So um, I think that when I was, I think that my views in the Democratic Party, I, I, I'm curious as to whether or not my views in the Democratic Party are influenced, and I think they are, by the fact that like, when I was a kid, your options were, like in Cincinnati politics, were the worst people in the entire human history of time or some nice lady Democrat like Roxanne Qualls. Now, I, I wanna I wanna note here that my parents firmly believe that every single Republican is a bad person. Like every single one of them, all of them, every single one. 
and they are, my parents are great people and they would tell you that like they, you know, they work to find love in every human heart. But my parents, I think because of the experiences that they've had and because they basically hang out with each other and then other lefty older people, um, my dad spends most of the time on Facebook that he isn't posting about birds or a house or a thing he's working on. It's like pro Democrat memes, which sometimes it's like, I don't like, I'm, I'm not going to try and stop him from doing that, but I would really appreciate if he would not do that as much. Um, do you think they've moved in a more um, partisan direction as they've gotten older? Oh, like, I mean, is there... I think that they, they, the reason they've moved in a partisan direction is that I think that living in Ohio after the 2016 election, mm-hmm. especially because you would be experiencing as or they are, as, as anyone is, you're experiencing the social mediafication of people use nose views. So there are people that my mom went to high school with who she remembers like as nice people. Then she followed them on Facebook and mm-hmm. every single thing is about how like, you know, save America, lynch a Democrat or something like that. And I think in response, my parents with no evidence have just concluded that like somewhere in the, like that Republicans are very, it's very much the same way that like, you know, older Republicans who would use Facebook or use these means in this way would talk about Democrats as just being this unified threat to them and their way of life. That's how my parents feel about Republicans. Yeah. And do you think that this is a real thing though? Because my take has always been that Social media does not really reflect what broad swaths of the population. Oh, believe. no, no, no. It, it doesn't. But I am curious as to whether it is causing it, whether or not social media is causing large swaths of people to start believing something. Like to Yeah, believe I, I agree with you on that. I think that there are social media pressures, just like there are lots of different ways platform entities can pressure people. I think that thing about social media is that I think it is it pushes towards people towards a homogenized set of views where it's like you didn't Mm -hmm. really care about this issue but this person supports it or this person hates it so you're just gonna like why not just add it on and so I think that people have much more heterodox set of views but I think that social media demands that I mean it's an inherently flattening mechanism that demands that we all make sense and a lot of people don't make sense. I don't. Yeah, I think that there are people who think that 40% of the population are left-wing right. socialists and 40% are white nationalists or right. something like that. And it's not like that. But I do agree with you that it does drive things in that direction because as people start to believe that that's what's going on, they do it's, – it's almost like a self-perpetuating situation where what what is happening on social media or happening happening on Tucker Carlson or wherever it just gets magnified over and right. over and suddenly that does become the ethos of a lot of people right yeah and i think that that's something because it's like it it's not less real because it happened this way like i think that these views are, I mean, I think that that's actually what concerns me is that like, if you can 
be so fervent, but have your belief be so shallow. Like that's kind of scary in a way. Like there are people who have the exact opposite politics that I do, but they came by those politics in a very like, this is how this happened. And this is how I got here. And I, at least I'm like, that makes sense to me. Like you've lived a life and had experiences and read books and then you got to this place. And I understand that, but like the people who are just like, that's like, you know, if they wrote something three years ago, now suddenly it's like, no, that's anathema. Like, I, I don't get that at all. Yeah. So let's talk about your move from the Democratic Party to the Libertarian Party. Mm-hmm. Presumably, you would view your views as being pretty consistent during that time, right? You were like basically liberal. Um, Is yeah. that a fair description? I think, that, no, I think that my views did shift on um, gun issues and on um, uh, the use of police, um, you know, so, criminal justice issues. So would you say that you moved away from the Democratic Party or do you feel like Democrats oh, moved away I, from you? you know, I think I moved away. Um, I think yeah. I moved away from the Democratic Party just because like – it's not like, yeah, no, that was, that was, a, that was a me thing. I, I did it. Even though, from my perspective, the Democratic Party has moved away from liberalism largely over the past several years. And the, the Republican Party, too, to, to a great extent. But liberalism um, itself is sort of right. waning in these two parties. And what was a liberal Democrat, you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago is not really a liberal Democrat today. Like the, there's a, an intensity of illiberalism that is seeping right. into these parties, including the democratic party. I think though that like, for one thing, the Democrat of 30 years ago, I mean, that would be, it, I mean, that would have been a Democrat of 1992. That's like a, you know, a, the, how Bill Clinton gets, the presidential, you know, gets a win in the presidential election is very different from how any human being would do so now. And I think that in many ways, what I think that it, it's impossible for us to try to bring our politics forward or back. Our politics are so contextual. Like, I think that there are moments I was thinking about this with regard to, um, uh, William F. Buckley's piece, and I think it's nineteen. Is that nineteen sixty three? The Why the South Must Prevail, like, which is I think referenced a lot, but I don't think it's people read it, and it's very much it's a style of argumentation that just people not even just like the subject, but it's a style of argumentation that is so based on it being William F. Buckley looking at events that are taking place very far away from him, and I think that. That is something that, like, trying to bring people forward or back and think about, like, whoa, well, this isn't what Republicans did 20 years. Like, no, it isn't. But trying to bring that forward or back doesn't quite work. I will say, though, that, like, I think that the concern, and this is something that libertarians get asked all the time, is, like, I think that both parties got too overwhelmed by the nature of human liberty, which is not that people will always do stuff you like. Mm-hmm. Like you see this with like 
people getting angry about like the drag queen story hour thing. It's just like children, the people who have children who aren't yours, people you don't know are doing something somewhere that isn't illegal and isn't criminal and doesn't hurt anybody, but you don't like it. And you don't like it for reasons that are, you will tell people right and left, but like you would prefer they didn't do that. And sure, this is happening in a state you don't live in with a a state level administration that you don't, you know, have to abide by. In your area, nobody's doing this and everyone hates them, but it's happening somewhere. And so I, and you see this with how some people on the left talk about like whenever something very concerning from the state government comes from like Florida or Alabama or something, there's always all like, oh, we just got to cut those people off. That's like, that's not real. And I think that the ways in which people use their liberty with guns, with drugs, with making decisions you wouldn't make, or even think are, if not criminal, immoral, I think that there's this kind of bipartisan inclination to make people stop doing that. Like, you can't print, like, make people stop printing out 3D guns. Like, make them stop. No. Like, kids are getting on Instagram and feeling bad about themselves. Stop it! Like, people are doing a thing. We want them to stop. Major League Baseball is allowing people to use steroids. Make them stop! Like... I think the inclination that people have towards make these people stop doing this thing so I can go about my life feeling better is a bipartisan effort. Yeah, I think about that all the time, actually, how people, I think because of social media, correct me if you think it's something else that's causing it, they are freaking out about every single thing going on around the country, and it has nothing to do with them. Like someone... Someone shoplifts in some city and every conservative freaks out about it. Yeah. It's, and it's, the, like, it's not like you don't live there. You don't live there. <laughs> right. If you didn't know, you wouldn't know. Like, and I think about this with, because I, I try to examine this in myself because I know that like when a school board in Tennessee tried to ban the book Mouse, I was like, oh, hell no. Mouse is like that's one of the most important books we've ever read. I read it when I was nine. My dad brought it home from the library. I love it. And so I was like, I'm in, like I'm locked in. But then, you know, there was part of me that's like, are you ever going to go to this area of Tennessee? You ever like, why? Right. I mean, I think that that's, that's the challenge here is that like, when you hear about things happening, and I, I, I want to make it clear that when you hear about things happening that are legitimately like, I was about to say, like, at a certain point, like, some actions are criminal, but then, like, I, you know, when you hear about things taking place in communities where you're just like, you know, this is happening to someone who's like me, this is happening, this is being com- committed by people who would ha- who would do this to me if they got here, and you hear that from some people writing like this, that, like, they, you know, they ha- they can't do it to me yet, but they would if they could, and... That, I mean, that might be true, but I, I also think that we live in such a diverse country with so many people and that, like, the diversity isn't, you know, it's not just racial. It's the fact that, like, 
we have a country in which there is a a swath of a part of the United States where there are communities that follow the uh, fundamentalist Latter-day Saints and still believe in plural marriage. And there are communities there and they still practice the types of shunning and still practice the types of like what I find like religious views that I find repugnant, especially with regard to believing still in like the curse of ham and still believing that like black people are inherently evil. Like there are religious communities where people are doing that. There are places in the United States where people are still living on like super lefty communist communes. And like the United States has the self-confidence to be like, as long as you don't break any laws, (laughs) like try to keep yourselves towards yourselves, do what you want to do. And I think that that's something about America, like this urge to, homogenize not just our political views, but homogenize the political views of the country. We're just like, you really, they're like, some of these people seem to really think that if they just went to see, like they could, if the government would just do something about Seattle and it's like, oh no, no, that we don't like, they just mean the city of Seattle, just make it Republican. Or if everyone in Texas, like if Texas everywhere just became a Democrat, everyone would be so much happier. Like, wouldn't it be so much better if everybody did things in the way that I like them? And it's this ongoing battle I think we all, I do, have within ourselves towards, like, I wish things were better for other people versus am I just wishing that people did things the, more, the way that I would do them or the way that I wish people would do them? Right. And I think this is, this is a problem with both of the old parties, the major parties. And it's something I talk about a lot where, especially the Democrats often talk about how much they believe in diversity, but actually they don't. The Republicans don't, and neither do the Democrats. There is this effort to essentially create one cultural system or one one governmental system that applies the same way in every single location and every right. single aspect of our lives. And to me, this is antithetical to diversity. Because the idea of diversity is that some people live their lives in different ways and you might not like it at all, but, right. but I mean, you don't I live like, there. My hesitation there is that like occasionally there are moments in which I'm like, if you are in government and like, you know, I, I think a lot about how there are so many differing communities, but if you're in government and you are representative of a group of people who themselves are very diverse. I think that we see too often, I mean, one among Republicans, we see this like interesting back and forth as to when local power matters and when local power doesn't Mm -hmm. like, it's like Austin, Texas doesn't matter. Um, Texas itself. Yes. But I think that when, I mean, that's something that needs to be drilled out in local government as well, where it just is like, you know, having even small townships and localities that have like performative book bands because they're trying to wind up on Fox news somewhere. And you're just like, no real people really do live here. Right. And so I think that that type of like, there's so often where the second you get, and I think that this really speaks to the nature of power as like the second you get to any level of power, how the second that you become mayor of a city or mayor of a town, or the second you're on like parish council, you're just like, this is my time to make things in my image. Yeah, and there's no doubt that harmful things can happen 
at the state level or the local level. But I think too often people are striving for some kind of utopia. They imagine that there is some fix to everything. Like, right. like you could have both a country that has one set of rules and laws and also everyone is happy. Like yeah. it, you can't have both things. Part of there's a give and take. So part of maximizing happiness through decentralization, localism, federalism, etc. It it comes with the benefits and it comes with some costs as well. So there there's no doubt about that. But I think that there are too many people who think that especially I, I hear it often on the left, but also on the right, who think that oh no, if we were just in charge we could make everything good and everyone would be happy. But and it's interesting I, because that's often said by people who have never had or held power or secretly believe they never will. Like, I think that that's one of the challenges we have in places where you see one party rule for long periods of time. Mm-hmm. Like, the most popular governors, I believe, right now are essentially, like, the either party of, pur- like, governor of purple states. Because you see that parties that operate assuming they will never get power becomes scleteric. Like you see that happening like the Oregon Republican party or in, you know, democratic parties, sometimes in like Southern states where it just is like the assumption is that they never will get power. And I think that that's what you see a little bit online with people who are like tankies or like, in you know, post liberal traditionalists, um, who want you know, who are who want some sort of common good based politics is like at no point have you actually tried to do any of this, and you never think you ever really will have to do this because this is all going to be expensive and people are going to say no. Yeah, so you would consider yourself. I don't want to put words in your mouth. So would you think of yourself as liberal? Yeah. Yeah, and. And when you use the word liberal, how do you how do you mean it? Um, I use it in the term that I, I as a I think about it as a loosening, um, as I want to maximize human freedom and their ability to do things, and I want maximum conversation about how we try to do things together. And I think that the ways things used to be don't have to be the way things are and that things in the future could be better. Um, That's what I take it to mean. Yeah. So do you think that there is a lot of overlap with libertarianism? I think so. Um, I think that I found in libertarianism the I one the idea of thinking about all of this at all like that libertarianism is very much not something like my parent you know I think that for a lot of people they become either the politics of their parents or the exact opposite politics of their parents for a long time mm-hmm. and I think libertarianism was something that I made a decision about and I think that the libertarianism doesn't try to answer too many questions libertarian right libertarianism raises a lot of questions but i think libertarianism respects that you know and everything will just work out fine isn't what would happen i think about this with regard to um like criminal justice reform 
and how I think that sometimes when people are talking like criminal justice reform is hard because we have our inclinations towards what works and different definitions of what works. But I would never say that like as a result of the things that I favor, everything would just work and no one would ever face violence or injustice again. But I think that the maximizing of human freedom and the, you know, having a government that is reflexive, not reactionary. I think that that matters to me, but I also like, again, I don't have all the answers. I don't know what would happen if a lot of the policies that I think are good because good doesn't mean works. And I think that we've seen this a lot in history of like a policy platform that seems great doesn't work and you don't know it and you think about it a lot and you try to like test it out as much as you can. But I think that I I want a politics that's experiential and experimental. And that's what I found from libertarianism. So what do you think about, and I talked about this earlier, this, this increasing move toward illiberalism mm-hmm. in the two parties. And I saw just recently this new magazine, Compact Magazine, and I, I, I think you may know about it. It's, it's yeah. basically illiberal people on the right and the left coming together. Um, I don't know. They claim it's under the banner of social democracy or something, but it's pretty clear from their message that what they're against is liberalism. Right. Uh, I believe that they um, they said that the magazine was against the libertine left and the libertarian right. And I was like, well, I'm out. Um, <laughs> so I think that that's something where, again, if you have this, I, I mean, it seems to me, you know, I've only read a couple of articles there, but it just seemed one to be one where it's like people are going to click on this because they hate it's like kind of a hate click kind of thing. But I also think that a lot of the people who are involved in this project, one, they've turned their anti-leftism into anti-liberalism. Yeah. Um, And I think that I also think that they have this idea that like that their great ideas are being limited on purpose that like the success of their great ideas, you know, their ideas would be so successful. They're, but they're being kept from you or being like, in some way people are being betrayed. And I think that that's really concerning. Like this idea that like, you know, we all went, like we had it, we were so close and it all went wrong with like, I don't know the Magna Carta or something like that, that, you know, we've been downhill ever since and only through, aggressive action can we return to this time which i I, the idea of return just makes me very anxious yeah it seems like what they think is going on is there was some kind of liberal or libertarian um i don't know uh view that swept over the world right and 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 the outcome of that has not been good because People are sad. Yeah, they're like... It really is, though. I think it's like, um, one, it's the 2008 financial crash. But this idea that, like, liberalism has failed because not everything's great yet and people aren't happy everywhere and people still have war. And so that's why, like, 
I, the market economy doesn't work anymore. I feel like a big part of their message, because I've been following this for a while, you know, national conservatives and the Claremont Institute, yeah. et cetera. A big part of their message seems to be that the people who claim to be liberal are not actually liberal, but are – they're starting wars. They're doing the things that they claim to be against, and they've – Put in place this liberal order that we're expected to follow, but apparently they're not expected to follow it is how they view it. And since they're not – since these liberals who they view as either on the left or some on the right, since they're not going to follow liberalism, why should right. we follow it? Right. Exactly. Why should, like, shouldn't we why just should we try to – yeah, shouldn't we just try to play pound them? rules thing. Like, yeah, right. it's really – I don't know. It just, it's, it's weird to see your – like see your worldview operating as people were mean to me. Right. Like, that's really, that's very strange. Yeah. I was looking at one of these articles today from compact and here, here's an example of what it says. This is an excerpt from one of them. It said, as genuine scholarship has recently reminded us the actual classical tradition surrounding the freedom of speech, which is also the original understanding was strikingly different, different from what liberals believe in. Uh-huh. It allowed restrictions on blasphemy until well oh, into the oh, yeah, yeah. until well into the twentieth century. <laughs> disfavored prior restraints on speech, but gave broad latitude for reasonable content-based regulation after the fact, and generally allowed public ordering of speech in the service of the common good. And they write this paragraph. It's unironically written. It's it's written like yeah. they're they're pining for the good old days. When, yeah, when you can have blasphemy when, laws. Right, when the government... And also, I, I just like that, like, the assumption is always that the government in your ideal would have your views. Right. Like, no one ever is like, so what happens when, like, drag queens are president? Like, you don't... No one ever thinks that way. It's just like, if we went back to this thing, which I'd be in charge of, everything would be great for me. Like, oh, like I just, you know... It's it's when you get it. I remember um, under Trump, there was this talk of like writing, you know, senators writing letters about how like, oh, it's time for the Department of Justice to take action against obscenity. And I went through all these law cases being like, nobody knows what obscenity is. There was a test case. There was a case in Florida where it's, you know, because it's based on the community standards of wherever you are of like what is considered to be obscenity. So he entered into court the. Uh, Google search results for where he was from and it was somewhere in Florida. And I just keep thinking like when people want this, the, the, it's so clear that you think that like one, I would benefit from this and I would somehow be in charge of it. Right. Like as though the, um, the people on the right aren't going to be upset when the, you know, so-called woke left is in yeah. charge of um, the public ordering of speech yeah, in I the service I, of the common probably- good. Yeah, this this sounds like the thing they're complaining about right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it just is like, so this problem you have, you would like, I mean, it's the same thing of people wanting like big time tech regulations. Uh, like, and they're just like, so the problem you have, you would like to make it much worse. Yeah. Oh, what if you're just never allowed to post anything ever because, you know, no one wants to deal with all the hassle of the lawsuits. Like, uh, it's, it's so annoying. So, I've always gotten the sense that you don't really like politicians. Am I right about that? Like at all? Like, uh, uh, like you don't, you just don't care for them in any way. There's no, there's no politician where you think, oh, I kind of like that person. I mean, and, and you've been in politics. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I kind of forget me. We don't want. I don't want to create a conflict here. So forget me. But 
Um, but I I don't want you to feel like you have to say like, oh no, I liked you. I so. think that the idea of the older I get, the more the thought of wanting to be in politics I find a little concerning. Like, there's a certain a part of me kind of thinks that being president should be something that you're just sort of assigned. Like, ah, oh, crap! I got like you got assigned the presidency <laughs> because I think that you know I've known people who are it, 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 it the part of the being in office even at low levels that is performative and it just inherently mm-hmm. performative like the degree to which your office lends you this authority and then you are you try to use it to gain fame or just be someone who's discussed like I, I, part of me was like, if there, if you, we could have like secret Senate or something, like where no one knows who it is, but it's actually like, like we vote for them based on how they answer these questions in writing, and then that's who is the Senate. We never know who they are, um, so they can't get famous. And, but I think like there have been politicians I think who have made really brilliant decisions, but they're people, so they've probably also done something. I'd be like, well, that's stupid. Like, you'd sign on to, like, you know, like, going back, you'd sign on to a, I mean, and a lot of this is time-based. Like, you would sign on to something that seems like a great idea, and then turns out it destroyed everything. Like, I think that being a politician is very hard. Wanting to be a politician, it's just, to me, unimaginable. Like, and I'm someone who, I really like it when people pay attention to me. That's why I host a podcast. But, like, wanting people to then, like, trying to get people to vote for you, especially, uh, and trying to perform your own politics in such a way that people either like you or pay attention to you or want to vote for you. I don't know. That just seems hard. I always found it very challenging because I'm an introvert. And if anything, I was not interested in being in politics. I, I prefer to just, you know, be at home watching TV or whatever and not, not getting into the but mix of it. How did you get that? Like, what happened? I forced myself into it. I forced myself into it because I believed what the two parties um, were doing was wrong. Like, the, the things they were doing were wrong. And I just thought I have to force yeah. myself into this so that I can make a difference. And it meant overcoming a lot of things, like... A, fear of public speaking or you know not wanting to be in a big room with a bunch of people and i just sort of forced my way through it um but yeah like i i actually think that a lot of people are getting into politics for very different reasons like i wanted to get into it to be a legislator but a lot of people today they're getting into it to be performers and you see the people who got into it as legislators who then became performers, and it's the weirdest thing in the world. Yeah. Which is like, you didn't used to be like this. Right. And and almost everyone changes within generally a short period of time. Right. So they get in, and they there are a lot of people who run thinking they're doing it for the right reasons, and then as soon as they get in there, they're like, oh, no, I'm just going to be an actor now. Like, this is <laughs> this is actually a performance job. It's not a legislative job. And, and so it is unfortunate that that's the way it's been moving. I could talk forever about the structural problems that are leading in this direction. I, I won't talk about it here right now. But, but I think that we are increasingly getting to the point where politicians basically are just performers and actors and – 
they don't actually have much power. People have asked me, like, since you got out, like, don't you feel bad that you can't actually affect the political process? But the truth is, other than the Speaker of the House and a few people surrounding the Speaker, you can't really affect it anyways. There's no power. You can't even offer amendments on the House floor anymore and have them voted on. So, like, it's just – it's it's not really a situation where members of Congress have any more power than I have. Like we can both tweet, right? right? They can they can tweet and I can tweet and they can go on TV and I can go on TV and they can have a podcast and I can have a podcast. So <laughs> like it's there's not really much of a difference there. Um, but yeah, it is it is unfortunate. It's just that I've noticed over the years that of a lot of people like I don't you don't seem too enamored by politicians no like it's just not a thing like I don't I don't see you fawning over any politicians and thinking oh like isn't this one great no but but there are a lot of people in the media who who do fawn over politicians I mean I think that's I understand that and I think that for some people especially because I think that politics can feel so exciting like it, it is the more I am in this and around people is that people who aren't who aren't into sports treat this like it's sports. And I even comes with kind of the atmosphere. Like when you're when you see like something exciting happen on the like you see a bunch of reporters running. Like there's something about that just visually that just is like, oh, something interesting is happening. You want to follow what it is. And when people are like, especially when people are in positions of power and they deign to talk to you, even if it's like you realize that their power is kind of like, eh, um, especially living in DC. I think that you do see people who, I think they become enamored and then disheartened with a very specific type of Washington. Like I've lived in DC for 12 years. My life has nothing to do with the Capitol. Okay. Like I went for, I go for a big walk every day and occasionally I like walk past the Capitol and I'm like, Oh, that's nice. Cause it's a beautiful place. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very like, it's white and shiny and there are tour groups and the cherry blossoms are out and it's great. Um, but I think that people become, especially people who work in media where if you're coming in, you have one of those jobs when you're like 22 or 23. And in a lot of cases, it's like you're, you had an internship and then you got that job and you've worked so hard and you're not making any money, but this is like, you feel really important. And that importance, you know, it carries over to like, you think the people who do this job are important and then they feel important. And I think that that leads to this weird atmosphere of everyone kind of pushing up each other's importance in a way that relies on this understanding of politicians as themselves important. But once you take that away, once you're just like, you're just some guy, like your powers are actually pretty limited or should be, you're saying all of this to be on television because you think that television is more important than what you do mm-hmm. um, about doing anything because your biggest fear in life is to not be doing this anymore. Um, and that sounds like most members of Congress. Yeah. We're just like your biggest fear in life is that someday you're going to get voted out and you won't be doing this anymore. Um, and I think that that's something for me, like, like I recognize that, the work can be important and should be important, but I think that the people doing it often, like their own importance is vastly overstated. I've I've met some nice people, like people who were working in Congress who were nice. That was nice. And then I was like, okay, bye. (laughs) Right. So is your interest in politics and cultural issues mostly intellectual or do you feel 
really emotionally invested in outcomes? Um, it depends on the issue. Like, I think that there have been moments where, like, I think that the marriage equality fight, that was one where I was like, oh, this is what it's, you know, having your life very, like, very seriously discussed or being voted upon, like, that's, that was very hard. And that was, that went on for a really, it felt like it was going on for a long time. And I think that, that element of when it, when it's talking about you, like, I think that there's the moments where people are having like debt ceiling conversations. And I'm like, I know why this is important intellectually, but I don't feel anything about it. And I think that that's how we keep having these same conversations. Cause everybody's like, eh. um, but then when it, it's an issue where it is people, it is like about what you will or won't be able to do when it's something about like, you know, the chat, like challenges that you've experienced or you've seen people experience. I think that that's a different moment I have for politics, but I also know that what repulses me is when people treat all politics as if anyone following it is doing so for not even intellectual reasons, but for like sports reasons. Like I think that horse race coverage when it's like this person, um, it, yeah, this person has given gone to conferences with anti-Semites. This person is super into QAnon. Who will win? And you're just like, hang on. Like, I feel like, you know, who are they going to represent? Who are the people? Like, what's going to happen to them? And I think that that's something where, like, I am interested in politics from an intellectual level, but I think that I've, I've seen so many times where it's like, I, I feel like I don't know enough, even about my own politics and like what the ramifications would be or what the arguments are against it, which is why I host a show called the arguments. People can argue with me about how I think about things. Um, I think that there are moments where it's like, I don't know just enough about this topic. Uh, my former colleague and friend, Matthew Iglesias, he made the point in a newsletter a while back where he talked about how one of the things about arguing with a conspiracy theorist is that the conspiracy theorist always knows more about the subject than you do. Like half of what they know is nonsense, but half of it is like, obsessive like if you ever talk to people who are like moon landing truthers like they know every detail about like every you know but what about this what about this and it's like it's impossible to argue with because that's not how most people interpret events but i think for me it also means that like there are a lot of issues that i'm always working to become more knowledgeable about but there's a lot of stuff where i still don't know and i think that being okay with that uncertainty has been really important to me where it's just as like, I think this, but this is happening right now. So I don't actually know what the solutions are. Like I think about this a lot with issues relating to homelessness. And I think about how like, well, there are different types of homelessness. Um, you know, there are folks who are chronically homeless, which I think is what pe people mostly think about. There are people who are cyclically homeless, which is something where it's like they can find housing, but then they'll lose it. They find it again, they lose it. There are people who experience like episodic homelessness where they'll find a place, but that job is very iffy and they'll lose the job and experience homelessness. And then they, you know, they find a new place and all of those require different solutions. And I don't know what all of the best ideas are. Like, I don't like, I think that one of the things I found is like, if you know a lot about a topic, you either you know, you, you have more questions than answers. You're not sure why something happened or why, what should happen in the future. 
And the more you read about it, the less sure you are. Yeah. How did you get into your podcast? It's it's with the New York Times. Yeah. So did they just – were yeah, you so, doing writing yeah. for them? What, what no, happened? Um, I, was, uh, I was writing and hosting a podcast called The Weeds at Vox. And I got an email one day um, asking if I had any interest in doing something with The Times. And I really had a wonderful time at Vox. That was like the best job I ever had in my life. Um, but I – that was the moment where it was like, I could have this opportunity to try doing something brand new or have a focus that's new. I like the fact that, you know, I write like once a week. Um, I get a chance to learn something new and have conversations all the time, which I really like. And I like to Mm -hmm. talk. Um, My mom tells this story sometimes, but when I was like three years old, I told her I wanted to be a priest because I wanted to be the talker up there. And as far as I knew, the most powerful person you could be was a priest. Um, just shows what I knew. <laughs> but I, like, I've always, I like talking. And I like talking to people. And I like generating conversation. And now I have a job that's, that's entirely about that. It's about talking. And it's about talking to people. And hearing from people. And making arguments. And hearing other arguments. And I think that that's why I find the show so exciting. Do you have to do a lot of prep because you've got guests coming on who might be experts in a field yeah. and yeah. or they've written I, a book do you have to read uh, every book that i try to read every book um i've gotten really into um audiobooks are very helpful for that because every day i take like a two hour three hour long walk and so for example um peter pomerantsev's book this is not propaganda fantastic highly recommend um he was on the show two weeks ago um that episode came out last week and so I listened to his book on 1.3 speed going on these long walks around Capitol Hill um, and Eastern Market, which is a neighborhood you may have known a little bit when you were in D.C. And um, just going these long walks. And it took like I, over about f- it, five days of each day going on like a two hour long walk while listening to this book. And, and it was very good. And I think that. One thing, though, is that, like, we record for 90 minutes, so there will be times where I actually have more questions or want to have ask more questions or I've done too much reading. Like, if we're talking about something – no, it's, it's, uh, it's a real issue because there are some when I have done all this reading, but we have two guests. So there's only so much me you can have in that show. I, I need to actually ask questions, but part of me wants to be like, well, the Supreme Court found in 2014 that, like – you know, you, you want to kind of have this moment of like, I did all of this, but um, so yeah, I do a lot of preparation, do a lot of reading. A lot of the topics, fortunately, um, they're interesting to read about or there are every times like if it's about Republican politics, I've probably read it all because um, that was such a focus for me at Vox on conservatism and the American right that that's just something that I always read all that stuff anyway. Um, and by all that stuff, I realized that sounded very dismissive, but like, you know, I read National Review, the American Conservative, um, any host of like conservative websites and publications. And so I think that that has been for me, like that's something I've continued to kind of keep up on. But if it, especially if it's about a field that I'm like, you know, if it, when we did an episode on immigration, that was one where I took like 15 pages of notes just to be able to be conversant in the different visas Mm -hmm. and thinking about how so much of our immigration discussion is like, 
you know, people get, people are discouraged from doing legal immigration, but the means by which you can get like temporary work visas has been easier than ever. Like, which I, uh, it's a very like disjointed way of thinking about it. But when it's a topic like that, I do a ton of reading and research. Yeah. Do you feel a lot of pressure because it's the New York times? I mean, I it's like a, it's like a high profile. It is, but it's also, it's me at the New York times. And so I want to do a good job for me. Like I think about all the time that like my mom listens, my dad, like my parents listen to every episode, my spouse listens to every episode. And I just want to be, you know, you want to walk into your home and not be like, what did you do? Um, But, you know, I I want to do the good job, especially for the listener. Like I want to do a good job for people who come to the times and are wanting something. They want to hear these conversations. They want to know more and know more about why they think the way they do and why people don't think the way they do. I hope they do. Do you feel like you actually use all of the prep though? Or do you, do you feel like some of it gets lost? And do you wonder, do you ever wonder about the balance between like my mind needs to be sort of clear and nimble versus, uh, um, you know, I've got all this stuff in my really head. Depends. Like there are times where I want it to be, there are times where I do a little bit less because I want it to be more nimble. Cause it's like an issue that I'm pretty engrossed in by being alive. Yeah. And then there are times where it's like, Oh, I need to be, if I can't, if I say the wrong thing on this, it's going to like, I'm going to have to redo it or it's going to be a big problem. Again, that's the legal stuff a lot of the time. Um, But I think that there are times where I think it is important to be ready to ask more questions and just to act on behalf of a listener who may have never heard of this thing. Yeah. So tell them, tell uh, our listeners how to find your podcast. Um, So you can just Google my name, um, Jane Coaston, the argument, um, you can go to the New York Times website. You can look for The Argument on any podcast platform like Apple or Spotify. Um, yeah, it's it comes out every Wednesday. So we have a new episode today uh, with David French and Michael Brendan Doherty talking about the GOP response to the war in Ukraine. Um, they got really mad at each other. You know, it's a good time. Um, right. But yeah, so that that's, that's the podcast. Well, Jane, you've been a fantastic guest and... Um, I've been following you ever since I had some staff members and a bunch of others tell me, Hey, you gotta, you gotta meet Jane Coaston. And I was like, I was like, who's this Jane Coaston they keep telling me about, but now I understand, uh, why they wanted me to meet you. So I, I just want to say thank you for coming Absolutely. on and, uh, and best of luck to everything, uh, to, to everything you're doing in the future. Thank you very much. I appreciate that.